HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Bento Box, a full-service marketing and commerce platform that helps restaurants get discovered, make more money, and engage their diners. Join over 8,000 restaurants already using Bento Box today to deliver better hospitality. Visit getbento.com slash chef today to get your first month free. That's getbento.com slash chef. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history here at Heritage Radio Network. And when we think of Tibet, I venture to say that we think of vast mountains and soaring heights, maybe herds of mountainous animals like yaks and goats, and of course, Buddhist monks in their colorful robes. But I I really do venture that rarely one of us thinks of the food of Tibet. I mean, there are a few Tibetan restaurants, particularly in New York City. Um, and when I say few, I mean very few. But it seems that for the general population, little is known about the food or even the cuisine. Is there a cuisine? But now, fortunately, we have a link to what was long missing from the global culinary map. My guests today are Julie Kleeman and Yeshi Jampa. They have put together the first comprehensive Tibetan cookbook and the only collection of its kind in the United States. This is an authentic exploration of cooking, eating, and living like they do in the Himalayas. Julie is an award-winning food writer, and Yeshi is a chef and restaurant and recipe developer from Tibet. Together, they're the award-winning team behind Taste Tibet Restaurant and Food Stall in Oxford, England, and now the authors of Taste Tibet, Family Recipes from the Himalayas, from Interlinked Books. The book is really, truly an insight into a culture and its cuisine that is little known, and it really explains how to cook these ancient dishes in the way that perhaps Buddhist monks cooked them in the Himalayas. It really captures the, also the spiritual and personal essence of this unique cuisine as written in, in the uh, foreword of the book. And I thank you both. First of all, I welcome you both to my show. And um. thank you for writing this wonderful book. It's, the stories are, are 
delightful and touching. And the recipes are approachable. And and I love the head notes. And Yeshi, I love all your comments on, <laughs> on the cooking. It makes that really um, a, a very user-friendly book. Thank you so much. So I would like to know, I mean, given the, as you have even written, I think, Julian, you wrote in, in the beginning, that given the geography of Tibet and its relative isolation, Tibetan people have always eaten what's locally available and in season. And that's right. over time, they've come to understand, you say, the innate properties of the herbs and the vegetables and the meat that they consume. Can you elaborate a little more on that for me, both of you, please? whomever (laughs) yeah for sure so obviously um most parts of tibet are quite isolated one region to the next and i mean i think where yeshi grew up certainly wasn't near any kind of hospital and most parts of tibet uh the same would be true so for millennia People living in the Tibetan region learned how to uh, cure themselves of acute or chronic illness using herbs, uh, plants, and and through an effective diet. And these are um, teachings that have been passed down from generation to generation and that people still very much lean on, even in the modern day. Um, Yeshi's family, who are still a long way from a good clinic or hospital, will rarely seek medical um, attention unless it's really an emergency. So focusing on, on a good diet is the number one way to, to self, for self-healing. Well, it certainly appears from the recipes and from your explanations that it, it, it seems very healthy and there's no, what can I say, um, there are no extraneous snack food other than, you know, some, of mm. course, some sweets and, you know, and, but nothing that is um, not necessary, let's put it that way. Yeah, I, th- I think the key thing is, um, is that Tibetan people, I mean, obviously, some things are changing in the modern day, but they have always cooked from scratch and using ingredients that are locally available and seasonal, perhaps sometimes swapping seed varieties or some crops, one village to the next, but essentially understanding exactly where their food has come from, whether that is vegetables, fruit or or meat as well. They would usually consume one of their own herd. So there's mm-hmm. a very di- direct connection between um, the kind of their day to day day life and what ends up on their plates. As a result of which, um, they, I mean, all of us are kind of familiar with the concept of, you know, if we eat what is what is locally available, that's likely to be what is best for us. But I think that Tibetans are kind of living living proof of that, even in the 21st century when right. many many cultures have moved moved kind of quite far from that concept uh, many people in tibet are still very much living that kind of lifestyle and yeshi's family included well in fact you wrote that the the day-to-day existence of of your family yeshi have do have some modern additions and conveniences but that the food on the plates remains largely the same as your ancestors going back many years yeah that's the, you know the, the my family yeah, just like, I don't know how many generations, like, you know, my both parents really good cook, and I learned at a very, very young age, probably mm-hmm. like at 19 years old, and 
just you know always in my home the, the cooking we I saw it uh very young age and then I just uh we I help to cook uh but in home not that much but we summertons we I go with my dad on the mountains and we took the ships yaks uh six months we stay with on the high mountains on the Himalaya and they just move around on the mountains and the, the values different values um because in the summer we feed the animals like a different variety on the mountains to mm-hmm. the kind of grass and different grass like a kind of uh basically medicine for the animals that's why we look after the animals and we know the the animals like meat complete, completely organic we know that so so you led that nomadic lifestyle you you were gone for 6 months at a time yeah, you, yeah. Just uh, my father's family is completely nomad for the many, I don't know how many years. You know, the many generations. Mm-hmm. We are for my family is uh, uh, salmon nomadic. So we mm-hmm. have land, and we have lots of animals. So you have a home to come back to <laughs> yeah, after we, you've been away. So they're never far from the animals. So during the six months of the year that the family is not out on high pastures of, of the, the plateau, as Yeshi mentioned, helping the animals move from one grazing land to the next, the animals live inside the same home. So they occupy the ground floor of the house and they'll still be looking after those animals for, for the six months of the year that they're not they're not outside. And those animals also provide some some warmth and heat to the house. So the family mm-hmm. live upstairs um still still tending their their herd um but you know all sharing one house so what tell me um just as a kind of a broad stroke um description what is the how would you describe the cuisine of tibet the basic flavors and influences so I think this really depends where you are and what kind of life you live. So for nomads who spend six months or, or you know, pretty much 12 months of the year away from home, the diet is, is usually very basic and it's restricted to those crops that are able to thrive at high elevation, uh, namely barley, um, and then also the produce of essentially the yak, which is with its kind of proportionately larger lungs, the animal that is best um, designed to survive at such high altitude. So barley is usually made into, it's called tsamba, which is at first the barley is roasted and then it's milled to the consistency of flour. And with this barley flour, you can either, well, it's very versatile. You can have it in the morning as a porridge with, with hot water and maybe something sweet. Um, and it can also be rolled into dense energy balls. Our kids eat it that way before they they head off to school in the mornings. And mm-hmm. you can even make bread out of it. That's something that can also go in your tea. Um, but when you're at lower elevation, you obviously have access to a much wider variety of, of vegetables in particular, and also fruit. And And there the cuisine becomes a lot more varied. And so... You know, you're still cold. You're not as, as you're not at five thousand meters, but you know, at nighttime, even in summer, you're going to feel a chill. And so the the cuisine is designed to warm hands and bellies. You'll find quite a lot of soups and stews, comfort food, warming food, 
and often often in one pot. So, you know, a, a massive big pot of um, noodle soup. Noodles feature quite large in the cuisine. And also breads. Those are usually flatbreads because everything is cooked over a, a fire. So On top the, of the stove. It's a top of the stove cooking, right? Yes, that's right. Um, the breads, the bread looks, um, yes, I must compliment you. The breads, the fry bread look beautiful, absolutely, and delicious. Thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, so you, there is um, a, a theory of the properties of foods, and, and I immediately thought of like the Renaissance humoral theories of, of healing foods and what, you know, the different properties of the foods. And um, you wrote that, that there is this also this theory in uh, Tibetan culture about the foods are the, the hot, the cool, the neutral. Mm. Can you talk about that? This is quite similar to traditional Chinese medicine. And in mm -hmm. fact, um, many ways of, of perceiving food and understanding how that affects the body across Asia. So Ayurvedic medicine also to some degree. So Tibetan people perceive some foods to have what they call hot properties. So things like um, garlic, ginger, tomatoes. These are the kind of foods that you'll you should eat more of if your body is cold um and if if there is if it's hot then you should eat more cooling foods like yogurt or say cucumber and then there are some foods that sit somewhere in between and ideally any tibetan spread would have all of these foods represented so that everybody can have a, a little bit of everything or or more of one kind or the other depending on their unique constitution mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I always sort of thought of, of the food, and, and I think you even mentioned a lot of people uh, sort of think of the food of Nepal being, you know, Tibetan, but there really are, it's really different. But there is that um, that Northern Asian kind of influence very much, yeah, I can see in a lot of the recipes. Yes, I mean, Tibetan people have been traveling in Nepal and in India for a very long time, there's been trade, so salt moving out of Tibet and, and rice coming in, for example. And so obviously some of the culinary influences from those regions have also made their way in and also out. Right. I mean, the, the Himalayan salt is, you know, has just become wildly popular um, across yeah. the That's world. A, right? Yeah, it's example, like, you know, we, we say the Kashmir jumper or Kashmir soda. And it's huh. all the wolves come from Tibet, and they're <laughs> married in Kashmir. So where that's where the very expensive Kashmiris, all the uh, wolves come from Tibet. So that's the you know, people think it's from Kashmir, but this is uh, originally come from Tibet. And in fact, when you when you talk about the salt that has become, as you say, wildly pop popular, most of that pink Himalayan salt, in fact, hails from Pakistan and not from Tibet. So Tibet oh, interesting. also has its own uh, wonderful salt flats and many of Yishi's family members do work there. And he, he often says that that's really the only seasoning you need for a meal. It's so delicious when you are consuming salt that was produced just down the road. You know, it's so fresh. It's so delicious. You just don't need anything else. But yeah, mm -hmm. there's so much movement between between the, the regions that share that mountain range. There's much more could be said. <laughs> Yeah, well, I I can imagine that the the trade and uh, and sharing is is quite prevalent. Um, I mean, just I just look at the 
you know, the, the beautiful decorations of, of the homes and the doorways and think, well, you know, this is, this has materials that, you know, have to come from all kinds of different places. Mm. That's yeah. interesting. And the, the better foods, like, you know, the, like freshness and then just local ingredients, it does make everything fresh and really much tastier. Mm. So uh, there, there are some uh, vegetables that were maybe not native to Tibet that that um, you know have made their way in from other parts of the region. But you know, mm -hmm. once grown locally, that's that's the key. Uh, eating always as close to home as possible. Right. Yeah, that's the yeah. That's you know, make you everything tester and just healthier. Right, and uh, and just and I think of um, especially where. Um, Yeshi, your is it Yishi or Yeshi? Uh, Yeshi, yeah. Yeshi, okay. <laughs> um, where your family uh, comes from, where you come from, is that it is very rural and very isolated. But um, I mean, in this modern day, things you know, things do make their way everywhere, right? That's right. The family have a greenhouse now, for example. That's a very kind of recent introduction, and most of the families in the village. Um, have one or they, they share and mm -hmm. so it is possible now to grow some vegetables out of their their normal seasons so that's that's quite a new um new concept um, that's a great not, concept yeah that's, yeah that's... <laughs> but not but not one that is embraced by everybody because hmm. because one precept of tibetan medicine is that in order for um food to have the most kind of uh, powerful uh, effect on the body that that foods that are perceived to be hot in nature, for example, should be grown in a in a hot environment and mm -hmm. and cold, you know, in the cold. Right. And so, to be growing them out of season is is definitely kind of new, and many people feel untested. Hmm. Uh, it's you had mentioned that in the book that it wasn't it wasn't embraced one hundred percent by uh, the greenhouses uh, mm. that are that are making their way in. And Yeshi, at what altitude is uh, is your family's home? Uh, I'm not sure exactly, but uh, probably 2,500. Mm -hmm. Meters, that is. Meters, yeah. Meters, right. Mm. right. So yeah. that, that's, that's you know, as high as most of our mountains. No, <laughs> not out west. But, <laughs> but that's, um, you know, in Tibet, that's really very low altitude. So where yeah. Yeshi is from, there's, there's um, an abundance of fruit and vegetables, a lot of soft gro fruits growing wild on the mountains and two growing seasons in a year. So they're really very spoiled there. And, um, you know, when we talked a bit earlier about food in Tibet, um, you know, we could say from his region that there's a bounty. But, you know, in other parts of, of the region, the same definitely could not be said to be true. I was really surprised to hear that there were two growing seasons. I read that, and and mm. that that surprised me. That was that was great. Yeah, we we live in a valley, and uh, mm -hmm. the and daytimes are very close to the sun, and the land is very very rich. And uh, we used the uh, on the land for the river uh, clean water, and that's just it's a very quite easy to grow things. So Tibet is quite can be quite dry but yes if mm. you live close to to good water as yeshi's mm -hmm. family do um then then you're kind of you're cooking with <laughs> a lot more exciting ingredients ultimately right <laughs> absolutely well of course i know that there it is um 
probably curious to a lot of people, and that is, how did you two meet? Yeah, I was worried we hadn't mentioned that up until this point. So we are a couple. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and, yes. <laughs> um, we met in India. So Yeshi left his home at around about the age of 19. So he has no actual record of his date of birth, but he knows he was born in the year of the sheep. So that gives him a rough idea. <laughs> <laughs> and um, he left by foot over the Himalayas to help his brother join the monastery in India. And he himself had no long-term plan to stay in India. His original intention was to return home, but I, uh, he hadn't understood how long and the journey would take and how, how dangerous that would be. And it was a bit of a one-way ticket. And by the time we met about, well, that was a, he'd been living in India for about 10 years at that time. So I was in India on a, on a work trip and, and living in China at the time, actually. I used to be the editor of the Oxford Chinese Dictionary. So this is how we ended up in Oxford in the UK. Mm-hmm. And uh, But I did a kind of sideline in NGO work and I had a, a week's work trip in India on the end of which I, I tacked on a short break because I was interested to see what life looked like for Tibetan people in India. Um, I had had kind of snapshots of that inside China where I was living at the time. But obviously, I mean, I knew it would be different over on the other side. And so we met during that short week um, just on a, on a path in the foothills of the Himalayas on the Indian side. It was a kind of chance <laughs> meeting. Amazing who you might bump into, huh? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, I mean, it's it's a fascinating story. Um, and, of course, now you have two young children and a restaurant and a food stall and now a book, a popular, I mean, we hope to be, and I'm sure will be, a very popular book. It's a beautiful book, um, very colorful. Uh, and what I would like to do is I is talk more about these um, specific recipes. But first, I want to talk a little bit about the material culture of the dining, particularly in the rural areas, and and it's described so well. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, Like the tables, you said there Mm. barely were there chairs or are chairs, but... That's right. Well, if you think of, um, you know, Tibetan people living their traditional lifestyle, they're mostly outdoors and mm-hmm. and mealtimes are, are usually big gatherings of um, of families who are living together, working together, helping each other. So they're, they're quite an occasion, especially when you think that a lot of that work is hard physical work. So there's something quite sacred about mealtimes, you know, that that's a, a moment for rest and to give some, you know, appreciation to to what you are enjoying. Um, stopping to take a moment to think about where it's it's come from and, and through you know, the many hands that, through through which it has traveled before it's reached the plate. And um and so good kind of time is set aside for for meals in Tibet and Yes, those meals are often just taken wherever um, wherever they land, and usually ta- tables don't feature large, and nor really does tableware. So traditionally, Tibetan people would carry just one bowl um, for the purpose of eating whatever meal that was, and the bowl would have two parts, and there's a lid um, 
for taking tea and Tibetans, especially nomads, will take drink up to 60 cups a day of it's butter tea. And this yeah. is something that, that people may have heard of. Mm. And also they, they wear a really high attitude and a very cold. And the middle of the, uh, the bigger fires and the way you sit around the fire, if you example, we, if we put the tables and then they block the fires. So. <laughs> oh, that's, that's true. I thought about that, right? And the but same it, in the it, home, actually. I mean, hmm. the fire is the cent- centerpiece of, of the home and um, there's no table next to it. So people will, will eat there, especially during wintertime when it's especially cold and then maybe not leave the fireplace. You know, they'll, they'll bed down there as well. Well, you said the bowls, and, and I read that um, the lovely story about the um, the bowls, and they are many of them mostly primar- out of, made out of wood. That's right. So Yeshi's brother and his dad make their own bowls. So they're beautiful. So they're made mm. usually from the work of bar for the the trees on the work of the bar. Oh, the the bow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the, uh-huh. well, yeah. Or mm-hmm. a, the you know a knot from the tree, and they all have their obviously the. One each piece comes out different differently to the next, and traditionally Tibetans would carry one bowl for life. And we mentioned in the book, you know, that there's a there's a popular song that likens these bowls to a lady lover, because they're held close to the bosom. They're they're kept inside the folds of the Tibetan cloak, uh, which is always worn. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, kept very close and much treasured. Mm-hmm. I mean, these days, obviously, there are uh, different kinds of bowls have made their way in, but that's a tradition that holds because the wooden bowl, as Yeshi describes it, is never too too hot for the hands to hold, and mostly these bowls are brought close to the mouth. So without a table, um, you're bringing your bowl close to, to the mouth to, to eat or to drink. And as he also says, you know, then it will never burn the mouth. So if you're drinking tea out of a wooden bowl, no matter how hot it is, when you're cold, you don't have to wait to enjoy that uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> that cup. Well, I mean, much has been written. If anyone knows anything about <clears throat> Tibetan food, I would imagine it's butter tea mm-hmm. that they know about. So, Yeshi, can you describe what, what is butter tea and how, how is, does one make it? I think butter teas, we use the black tea and uh, some people use some little bit of milk, but then we put a, a tea with a little bit of salt and we use the butter and then that's the, we, I don't know how to then put it in a churn. Put it in a churn and mm-hmm. uh, if they're fresh, you know, it is so delicious. Mm. As just I left to bed in 1999. And I was like, 20 years, I just leave other country. And I went a few years back. I think I went there, just my family drinking the tea. Just, you know, I joined with them. I just, I can't stop. It's so <laughs> delicious. <laughs> well, and very, and I would imagine give provides you a lot of calories and energy for what you need to, to live in that cold environment too, right? Yeah, that's also the give the energy, but it's just so delicious. And they, I think that's the part is, is all everything's fresh and then also the water is so delicious, just mineral water. That's the uh-huh. market says everything's food tested really good. And they just realize how food is just fantastic and delicious. <laughs> and is it primarily yak butter or whatever animals are, are being milked at the time? Um, but most in Tibet, yak butter, but yeah, some mm-hmm. we have cow as well. So, 
and we make this tea at home here in the UK. And we obviously, without yaks at our disposal, we make that with um, cow's butter and it's so delicious. And that's good. Oh, sounds great. Yeah. I think an unfortunate thing is that many visitors to Tibet uh, don't have the best experience of butter tea because they they are consuming it in parts of Tibet where um, the butter has lost its freshness or it hasn't been stored correctly or it's been kind of s- stored for an inordinate amount of time. And and obviously any kind of butter in those conditions goes quite sour and um, mm-hmm. local people get used to that taste. But as, as outsiders, when when we sample that that kind of tea you know it's very hard to to enjoy so you know we <laughs> right, we, right. we hope that we could encourage people to to give this recipe a go even if they've had a had a bad experience previously yeah, yeah. a little a little more rancid than just cultured butter huh? it's just <laughs> yes that's right <laughs> yes uh, um what so i i love um the well you you talk about sampa sampa is pretty much your the would you say if there's one dish that ha- that is, you know, is the most important dish, would it be sampa? I think, yeah, the sampa is like we like it, uh, eat to old old area in Tibet, mm-hmm. and like we can say it like a sampa eater means Tibetans like sometimes it. call themselves the or t- Tibet, the land of the Tsamba eaters, because hmm. no matter hmm. where you are in Tibet, that is a unifying custom, um, a unifying culinary tradition. So many other um, culinary traditions may vary from region to region, but the one th- the one that all Tibetans share is a love of Tsamba. Hmm. Outside and again, of Tibet. And, and the that's the, so that's, again, the roasted barley flour, mm-hmm. um, just mixed with water, right? Just... Yeah, I mean, our, our kids are usually butter as well. There's mm-hmm. a theme here. <laughs> <laughs> I see um, that. <laughs> but uh, our kids also enjoy it with cheese. So that's the way that they eat it for breakfast. Mm. So a little mm. bit of, of hot water and butter and cheese. But even without the cheese, even without the butter, it makes for a really kind of nutty, delicious snack. And I, I love how it, you know, it's, everything's worked with the hands. The hands are so important. Mm. And I'm assuming those are your hands I see in the photographs, Yeshi. Oh, <laughs> yes. You know, the, generally, you know, I think the many, like, like any country, I'm sure it used to be by hand, you know. Yes. So we, we, we lost from that. But that's the idea of this book. Mm. You know, we somewhere we need to understand uh, where the foods come from. And uh, so how they then so hopefully this book so the people can learn a little bit uh, to get a little bit kind of a closer connection with food. Yeah, and and hands mm-hmm. come into that equation. You know, eating with your hands and also Definitely. yeah, it also helps to make the food taste better. Mm. Yeah, you know, during the pandemic um, and we were all locked down, uh, suddenly there was a craze for baking bread. Mm. And I think, I think a large part of it was, you know, that, that again, like you said, having that connection again with the food, the kneading of the dough with your hands, touching mm. the dough and, you know, and, and squeezing it and working it. And, and I think it gave people comfort. 
Mm, I absolutely agree. And, you know, although obviously now, yes, she's here in the UK and there's all kinds of food processors that we have at our disposal. He doesn't, especially in um, home cooking, ever use those. Mm. Um, I I think he, you know, he never gets tired of cooking. And I think that you you can tire when you rely too much on on that kind of equipment, you know, but when mm-hmm. you're actually investing the, the time and en- energy and, and using your hands in that way, there's definitely a pleasure to be gained. Yeah. At your food stall or, or it, your restaurant, um, Taste Tibet, do you serve any Sampa at all? Or is it just a home dish? We serve it in one form only, um, which is, and there's a recipe for this in the book, chocolate samba truffles so Ah, um, we serve it as our kind of only sweet offering because as we've mentioned in the book Tibetans don't really have a culture of sweet treats except around the lunar new year time when they're they're widely and and wildly enjoyed Um, and so we don't really have much in the same in the same way we don't have much in the restaurant in the way of sweet offerings but sometimes people crave something sweet after their meal so we serve these chocolate samba truffles and that's a really nice way of introducing people to the idea of samba and um our customers love them (laughs) Uh, well we're going to take a short break right now and when we come back i want to go through a couple of these recipes and describe the dishes that are very different so stay tuned we'll be right back In the heart of Williamsburg, Brooklyn, Lilia combines wood-fired seafood, handcrafted pasta, classic Italian cocktails, and warm hospitality. Since 2016, it's been celebrated as a neighborhood gathering place, bringing the best of Italy to New York City. Lilia is one of over 8,000 restaurants that leverage bento box to power their digital front door, including their website, gift cards, event management, and more. BentoBox is a marketing and commerce platform built specifically for the hospitality industry. With BentoBox, get discovered, make more money, and engage your diners so you can deliver great hospitality both in person and online. Visit getbento.com chef today to learn more and get your first month free. That's getbento.com chef. Hey everyone, I'm Jesse Sparks, host of the new podcast, The One Recipe, from the team behind The Splendid Table. This pod is all about that one recipe that you lean on. The one you share with friends, the one you make when you need a little love, and the one you know will work every single time. Every week, I talk with chefs and gifted cooks from all over the world about their one, and the story behind it. We're here to help you build your kitchen library one dish at a time. Follow The One Recipe wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, we're back, and I'm speaking with Julie Kleeman and Yeshi Jampa. They are the authors of a new book called Taste Tibet, Family Recipes from the Himalayas. And Taste Tibet is also the name of their restaurant and food stall in Oxford. And uh, I, I guess a lot of people who um, are studying in, or in the Oxford, just visiting and traveling tourists, have had the opportunity to sample your momos. Can you mm-hmm. tell us about momos and what they are? Uh, momos is uh, 
Tiberian name, and the Samomans uh, eat old old Tiberian area, so it's a kind of a national dish. Uh, it's just so delicious. It's a steamed dumpling. Yeah. Well, what's what's not to like about a steamed dumpling, right? Uh, using whatever kind of fillings you might have to hand. So you know, if you happen to have uh, meat at the, at, at that point, you use meat, and yak meat is the traditional yeah. meat used but um beef makes a great substitute and and having said that you know chicken or, or pork work just as well if you prefer white meat um but yes yeah, she also remembers growing up delicious uh, veggie momos made with with vegetables just picked from the field next to the house yeah the, my Ooh. mom she makes it like you know squashed all the pack choice and, and the with a little bit of salt oh, yeah, and yeah. just you know she she makes delicious uh, fresh and uh, veggie mamas that's uh, really i remember oh we're getting and here we're getting to that season here now or maybe some of the ramps are coming up and some some of the new garlic and oh i could see mm. mixing all that in with some greens okay mm. um, you know a veggie momo is fine with mm. me <laughs> the one in the book that we call the uh, heavenly vegan momos that's yes, the one that we yes. serve at the restaurant and at the food and festival store and mm. that one uses i think in the us you call them garlic scrapes so scapes scapes okay. yes mm-hmm. yeah so that it's um a really kind of nice bite gives a nice bite whatever you um mix it with we usually use uh sweetheart cabbage and um Sweet. spinach but you know you can as as we said and and this is very much kind of in line with how Tibetan cuisine works in general you know whatever you have to hand and and you feel would make a good mix but mm. we we recommend those garlic scapes you know what i loved for several reasons i loved the look i loved the the ease and that is um the buckwheat pancakes mm. uh, they look like lace doilies on a plate they're absolutely mm. beautiful and you don't have to let them sit and ferment or anything, which is usually when I've used buckwheat in, in any kind of a, a bread type, you know, recipe, it's always had to sit and, and ferment a little bit. But these you can make straight away, right? Yeah, this is just fresh. This is so delicious. Mm. So, so sometimes often in the breakfast I make here, but in my home, so yeah, there's just... When I was little, they make my mom's. If I say I'm making here, that she just, uh, yeah, she loves it. So it's it. just eggs and buckwheat flour, and there you go. I mean, you're ready to go, but and just beautiful too. I'm, I'm gonna give that a try. I know. <laughs> uh, noodles are very, um, are very popular. Of course, you know we're traveling maybe a little lower to a lot of other grains, um, so you're able to use some. Uh, wheat flour, um, and I I like the fact that they're all, majority they're all hand pulled noodles. Can you tell me about the noodles and and the importance in those dishes? And the noodles in Tibet is very very popular and it's, it's very good because they're very cold and mostly kind of the dinner times Tibetan people eat noodles not that heavy, mm-hmm. and then. And also that's when it's coldest. So in the evening, everybody needs these noodles are usually served in broth. 
so you can get you do get fried noodles and that's quite popular amongst young people at any time of day but elderly people enjoy soup noodles in the evening as you say they're perceived to be light uh, but warming and there's quite a lot of, of delicious broth there too so it's not all about the noodles and and um what about the hand pulling, Yeshi? Um, so you cut the noodles after you make the dough, and then you cut the noodles, and then tell me about pulling them. And you, when you pull out a little bit, the dough makes a uh, quick skinny, and then pull the quarter make it easier to pull it, and the. Uh, he's doing the actions as he's talking. I can, I can, I can <laughs> yeah. almost, I can so, almost see it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's it. Makes a very nice. You can the, the thinner and uh, to, to top to end mm. with the back pull like that with the, in the hand, and you can make the which one size precisely and mm. perfect. But, you know, you can do noodles any which way. And actually a really popular way of enjoying noodles in Tibet is these hand-pulled noodles. So that's the first dish that Yeshi ever served me. And mm. and those are, are made from long strips of dough. And you you pinch the end off this, the strip and throw these bits into the broth. And so you end up with kind of squares, more like pasta, I guess, than noodles, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. squared noodles. Um, but there's so many ways of doing it, and we presented various different ways in the book, but we also encourage people to just stick with the, the way that they feel works for them because mm-hmm. because the, the taste is, is pretty much the same however you do it. Noodles mm. are made with just plain flour and water, sometimes egg as well, um, if, if you eat yeah, egg. Yeah, the high-gluten flour. Yes, right. it, yeah, exactly. Anything with a high-gluten content so, so yes, she often recommends like a kind of pizza flour. Anyway, a strong white flour. Mm-hmm. Um, well, certainly pulling them makes them springier, a little yeah. lighter and springier. Right? I think that's what he's trying to say. That's certainly springy. what I could see in his okay. movement. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I know the picture of him pulling it, and, mm. I, and I can see that too. <laughs> what, what are jelly noodles? Now, this is a real Tibetan dish, right? I mean, that or it's... it's Jolly uh, noodles like very popular like in the summer, and uh, some people in like like little bit of town and the city they they're selling outside in the street mm, street food. This kind mm-hmm. of street food and uh, people eat quick kind of that in the summer. So they're always served chilled. That's that's the important thing to say, uh-huh. um, and always with this ve- the very fiery sopen chili condiment. Because in of themselves, the the jelly noodles are quite tasteless. They've got an interesting texture, but it's the additional flavors that you bring to this dish, sesame oil, uh, soy sauce, and crucially, chili. And garlic. Garlic as well. That's right. Yeah, Yeah. that that gives it all the flavor. And it's it's the perfect kind of street food snack in in hot summer in Tibet. It does get hot. I mean, it's hot in winter, even during the daytime. Because as Yashi said, you're very close to the equator. I mean, the sun is very... You're very close to the the sun, right. And so in in summertime, it can get very hot. And this is a very refreshing dish. But as he mentioned, I don't think this is a dish you came across until you went to towns and cities yourself, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because mm. it's more of a kind of uh, urban thing. Yeah. Well, now the sepin is, I know, very important um, uh, in 
your restaurants, your establishment. But, mm. um, and, and of course, it's in, in my home, it's very important too, although it's not Seppin, and now we have all different <laughs> kinds of, and I can't wait to make your recipe. I was going to say, you must try Keep this one. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, so describe for our listeners what's, what Seppin is. What's important about it is that um, actually in of itself, Tibetan cuisine is usually not that spicy. So it's very kind of simple, warming, comforting flavors uh, that that most of your listeners will be very familiar with. But always on hand at the Tibetan dinner table, you'll ha- have this fiery, it's called sepen chili, chili dip, which people will add a little or a lot to depending on how much they enjoy it. And every family will have its own unique recipe. But the kind of essential ingredient is, um, apart from chili itself, and we use uh like hot chili flakes, is um, something called yama, which in the West we know as Sichuan peppercorn. And that has a kind of um, tongue tingling effect. Mm -hmm. So the chili is not a kind of um, quick hit. It's a very kind of, well, it's slow cooked with garlic and with ginger. and, And so it has a very kind of slow release heat that also gives you this kind of mm, what's going on on my tongue kind of uh, kind of feeling as well so it's right. a very interesting a kind of complex and delicious addition to to whatever almost whatever you're cooking maybe except the, but, the buckwheat pancakes <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean it's just i can see always having a i mean as as i will do with many dishes and having a a jar or a bowl of this seppin around to mm. yeah scoop on that's, anything mm. That's yeah, the food lovers they have mm. some chili always. Like yeah, yeah. Yaman is like a most like saltiness and then ton, I mean kind of that it's really, really good spicy. This uh, grows this mm. yama grows um well I was gonna say everywhere in Tibet, but in any case everywhere around where you're from, Yeshi. Yeah, so. the the wheat grow like a really organic. Just mm. around their house. They have a lot, Big lot bushes. Bushes kind of bushes. And is it the seed, or is it? You have to wait till it's dried, right? I mean, it's yeah. You can use the fresh as well, but it's oh, dry. Okay. So yeah, the dry that so we can get here, you can get it like any Chinese supermarket that you can get mm. good one. It's it's best mm. to buy it whole, and then you can kind of crush it yourself. Right. Uh, but you can also buy it in its crushed form. It just obviously loses something of its aroma and freshness that way. Mm-hmm. Um. Something else, what, you know, there are so many dishes and we can't talk about them all and people have to buy the book so they can find out <laughs> what they are. But um, I'm thinking of hand pies, the, um, mm. uh, the well, like it, they'd be like British pasties. I mean, <laughs> yes, a the, lot of people in our restaurant find it hard to believe that this is a traditional Tibetan, Tibetan dish right, because it looks like a Cornish pasty. <laughs> yes, yes, right. But and it's what's a, it, it Shabalep, yeah. Shapalap, okay, yeah. Shapalap. Um, and those, of course, look like they'd be, you know, a super treat for anyone. And we would encourage people because we gave a recipe only for the, the meat version there, which is the really traditional one that you you get in tea houses, especially in Lhasa, um, the capital of Tibet. Right, but we would right, encourage right. people to also uh, go for it, even if they're vegan or vegetarian, with one of the Momo fillings, uh, whichever one kind of... Um, tickles their fancy <laughs> mm-hmm. right. because yeah these are delicious veggie as well as as well as meaty yeah this is a very very popular in my restaurant now oh, uh-huh. 
Well, I see that Yeshi, you have developed so many different recipes that are, are more that aren't perhaps any that you grew up with, but with the influences of um, the Indian cuisine and and um, and other cuisines, and now living in England. Uh, and they, but one thing that caught my attention particularly. Um, is that a lot of the dishes that are like composed salads or look like a stir fry, but they're not a stir fry, are made with cooking the meat first and then chilling it, and cutting and and mixing the cold meat in with the the other ingredients. Oh, uh, I've I found that very interesting. That's um, kind of kind of the meat kind of a salad. Mm, right. That's what. Yeah. Exactly. That's what it looked yeah. like a salad. Yes, yeah, a salad. Yeah. It's just like this with salad. It's just a really side dish, and mm-hmm. and if you people like the drinks and they have beer with the whiskey, mm-hmm. whatever. It's just from in Tibet. It's very very popular. I think this mm. idea of cooking the meat first and then chilling it probably comes about because. Um, well, if watching how Yeshi cooks is anything to go by, usually you're you're not cooking in small quantities in Tibet. So if you have a piece of meat, you usually have come by a large piece of meat. And so some of that meat, when you first cook it, you will enjoy hot, but then you're going to chill the rest of it for kind of multiple different uses um, over the course of time. So I think that's mm-hmm. how that technique has come about. You're never you're just you're always dealing in in kind of large quantities of something and then how best to use what you have left over. And, and by all means, right. Yeah. Right. Make sure that you always use it. <laughs> but it <laughs> right. It's like example, like in my family, like we have like twelve people in one family. Mm. And it's just a big family, you know, that like in here so very, very different. And mm-hmm. just it's a yeah, it's a very, very cultural and everything's different. And because like, everybody will always eat together, you know, yeah. make, make time um, so to really, celebrate, you know, every meal time. And so, yes, you're always cooking large quantities of whatever it is. And then this mm. comes about with your leftovers. Yeah. yeah. Is there any particular dish or recipe that you that um, that you would like to mention or talk about that you feel is, is really um, – that illustrates the the cuisine in your mind. You know, for me, it's it's tantu. I mentioned this me- this recipe before. It's the hand pulled noodle soup. I think that is universally enjoyed, loved across Tibet, and and is so important for um, for warmth. You know, it's one that's enjoyed uh, by the fire at a nomadic camp, but it, it's also one that we cook here probably once a week. Uh, regardless of the season, because there's mm-hmm. just something so incredibly comforting about it for me. I don't know about for you. Um, you for me, it's like the momo is uh, the really, really. Uh, it's not that difficult, and there's just for me that when I was a young age, uh, my mom cooks the, the vegetable momos. I just really, really. Uh, it's, it's fun. Yeah, it's fun, and fun. it's just a family together, and easy and delicious. And with the mac with the sauce, so important to go with the momo. I think it's just momo's the best. <laughs> yes. Well, and, and as I said before, who doesn't love mm. a, a dumpling? You know, <laughs> mm. a, that's that's wonderful. Well, it is just a pleasure to to speak with you both. And uh, and this book, it makes I mean, it makes the book come to life even more. But um, 
it really, as I said, I could see, I could see the influences of both of you in here so well. And it is a wonderful book. And it's really does put Tibetan cuisine on the map. As I said in the beginning, it's, it, it sheds new insight into, into that. And the stories are so important too. the, as you wrote about the, you know, the Buddhist theory of the mindful eating and the rep show reverence to food you mentioned right from the beginning that think about where it's a quiet time to think about where the food mm. comes from. Yeah. Thank you so much, Linda. I mean, it's wonderful to hear that we have been able to, to bring the cuisine and the culture to life. And thank you so much for, for having us on. You're more than welcome. And, and I just, I wanted to say just a word about spices um, before I lived. I just realized it was something that, um, that I was curious about. And obviously you have the, the pepper flakes, um, but what spices in particular are you feel more indigenous to most of the areas that are used in the in the food? Would it be cumin? Would it be coriander leaves or seeds? What in particular? I think the, we we grow cumins widely, and the, the coriander just we don't need like in my home area. Just don't need uh, plant area because just grow mm-hmm. back. Because it grows wild, right? <laughs> yeah, and uh, just we're always available. But uh, mm-hmm. and the chili as well, like different chili and uh, very skinny chili we have at the Himalayan area. It just uh, it's hot, but it's just like uh, not that hard. It's a soft, and uh, I think the Himalayan area, the chili is a little bit different, but it's a very very nice one. Mm. And of course, the universal love for garlic. I was going to say that. garlic, ginger. <laughs> yeah, the garlic yeah. is just really, really. Garlic makes it. Yeah. Garlic is yeah. so good. Yeah, we have so much garlic in, in my home. Always like hanging around on the roof. <laughs> so. uh-huh. <laughs> well, I encourage people that if you are in the area of Oxford to check out Taste Tibet, either the food stall or the um, the restaurant. Is the restaurant located? Now the food stalls in the in the food market, right? The open air food market. Well, we used to have a food stall there, but then when we oh. opened our restaurant, um, we now only operate in that kind of mobile way at festivals. But we go to you know Glastonbury and the biggest festivals in the land. So uh-huh. Yeshi, Yeshi loves that to be in a field and you know in in the tent. Still, we are nomadic. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Reminds you of home, yes. Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, yes. Oh, well, that's wonderful. Well, well, so check out Taste Tibet, and that is that the restaurant is in Oxford, correct? That's right. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much, Linda. And of course, the book you can find the book now um, on your book on your booksellers' shelves. It's called Taste Tibet, and again, the authors, my guests, Julie Kleeman and Yeshi Jampa. Family Recipes from the Himalayas, Taste Tibet. Thank you so much. It has been a pleasure. Was, I could just keep on talking, but... So um, could I, we. Thank I, you, Linda. I know, thank, thank I know my engineer has to get going, too. So <laughs> <laughs> we will have to end it now. So thank you so much for listening, and thank you, my guests. Thank you for um, listening in. And remember that Heritage Radio Network is a listener-supported station. So you go to heritageradionetwork.org 
and click on the donate button in the upper right corner and show us some love. It'll keep us on this on the airways. Okay. And you can also find the podcasts wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks so much. And keep listening. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends. And please, join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.